We represent kids through our clinical program and it is free lawyers. And I tell you, I know when people hear that, they automatically think, oh, free lawyers don't care about me. We have been raising the level of practice for children's lawyers across the country. We hold trainings, we provide legal pleadings, we provide technical support, resources for lawyers who are doing this work precisely so that we can get lawyers for children to do a better job in court. Within three years of release, two out of three ex-offenders are rearrested. Clearly, something is broken. It's time we strategize ways to prevent repeat offenses. Our brainstorming session starts now. Welcome to A Prisoner's Pardon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Prisoner's Pardon podcast. I'm your host, Michi J. Today, we are switching it up a bit and looking at the juvenile justice system. We usually look at the adult side, but today we're going to talk about the juvenile side. The juvenile justice system is not as well known as the adult prison system. We're going to learn the differences. To help us with that, I have here today Miss Kristen Henning. Miss Henning is a Bloom professor of law and the director of the Juvenile Justice Clinic, an initiative at Georgetown Law. She represents youth accused of delinquency in Washington, D.C. She was previously the lead attorney for the juvenile unit of the D.C. Public Defender Service. Currently, she's the director of the Mid-Atlantic Juvenile Defender Center, and she has over 25 years of experience. She has so many honors. I'm just going to name just a couple of them because it's way too many to name. In 2021, she was awarded the Juvenile Leadership Prize, and she also was honored with the Robert E. Shepard Jr. Award for Excellence. Ms. Hennings is very qualified for what she does, and you will understand why in just listening to this interview and how she gives just some incredible insight into the juvenile justice system and how black youth are being criminalized there. Now let's jump into my interview with Ms. Hennings. Today we have a special guest, Kristen Hennings. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you. Happy to be here, Michi. Okay, that's great. I you have a huge background. And just tell us what else you want to tell us about your background and why you're doing what you're doing here with this book. Yeah, absolutely. I am an attorney who's been representing children accused of delinquency for now 26 years. And I tell you, in that entire 26 years, I have only represented four white children. Every other child that I have represented has been an African-American child. And look, I'm from Washington, D.C. There are plenty of white children in the city, but yet we only see Black children funneled into our juvenile legal system. And I have seen this across the country, the extraordinary racial disparities in our juvenile courts and in our criminal courts. And so I just really became passionate about this work. I first became passionate about the work when I was in college. 
And I had an internship in Durham, North Carolina. And I went to court and I just saw the extraordinary disparity in our system and really became passionate about why is it that we need courts for children anyway? And especially courts specifically targeting black and brown children. Thank you, because I wanted to hear your background, why you got into it, because like me, I have a twin brother that's been in and out of prison since he was young. And it's interesting why another person would get involved. Sometimes it's their family members that and they want to get help. And you said, first off, I want to normally with our community, we can't afford <laughs> attorneys. So what do you represent? How do you come in that way? Do they pay you or? No. So I do indigent representation. So my I started my career in Washington, D.C. and I'm still here. And I first represented children through Georgetown Law School as a fellow. We have this fellowship program that teaches young lawyers how to be lawyers. But then after that, I went to the D.C. Public Defender Service and I represented kids there for four years. And now I have come back to Georgetown and we represent kids through our clinical program. And it is free lawyers. And I tell you, I know when people hear that, they automatically think, oh, free lawyers don't care about me. They're not going to put in the time. And I have to tell you, right, <laughs> you've got to you've got to find out in your city whether or not the public defenders are great lawyers. And even if you get assigned a public defender, you can push them, right, drive them. You shouldn't have to, but you, should, you can push them and drive them. But I have to tell you for, Michi, for young people, we have at Georgetown Law School at, in the clinic that I run in partnership with the Galt Center, which is the National Juvenile Defender Center, we have been raising the level of practice for children's lawyers across the country. We hold trainings, we provide legal pleadings, we provide technical support, resources for lawyers who are doing this work precisely so that we can get lawyers for children to do a better job in court. But I came from the Public Defender Service. It's one of the best public defender offices in the country. I practiced here at Georgetown and we really believe in zealous advocacy on behalf of kids. We get out in the street. We investigate cases. We make legal challenges. Absolutely. We not only do the represent the child in the delinquency case, but we also do holistic representation, meaning that we make sure that they have social services that they need, that they get educational advocacy, that they get housing, you know, advocacy, all the things. And so, yeah, we push the envelope. So don't believe that a free lawyer is always uh, not on your side. I've never heard this before. So it's only in that area? Is it across the country? No, there are um, pockets of really great holistic public defender offices. The, let's say the, I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank here. The public, the Brooklyn office, the team child in, in, uh, Oh my goodness, Washington State. There are a number of the Philadelphia Public Defender's Office is doing great work. New Orleans, the Center for Children's Rights. There are a number. I mean, I'm and I feel bad for anybody who's listening and doesn't hear their state, but there are there are many, many, many. We have a very deep and growing network of defender offices that are really pushing the envelopes on youth 
defense in particular, and of course, adult defense as well. When I think about Gideon's Promise, I think about a number of organizations. That is great. That I wish we had that when I was young, because a lot of times the family are not knowledgeable enough to know what to do. We were lost. A lot of our family members are lost on what to do. And this holistic approach, I never heard that terms put together. You talk about legal representation, and then you also have this connected. That's, um, I really like that. And, you know, and I was thinking of that before when we were involved. I was like, why do we have help? And, And you have everything just right there. So my other thing is, I know we don't know a lot about juvenile the juvenile system. That system is not, you know, maybe it's just me aware, I'm aware of as much as I am at the adult side. So what are some of like the big differences that you can tell us from juvenile to adult? You know, what are the major differences? Absolutely. Such an important question for everybody to know that the juvenile legal system is designed to be a rehabilitative system. It is not meant to be as punitive as the adult system. Um, You know, unfortunately, the reality is, though, that um, too often our responses in juvenile court are still punitive. Um, But the philosophy of the court is meant to give children second chances to help them redirect, to provide those services that we talked about. Um, And we have to hold those courts to the fire and not let courts become punitive when people become afraid of crime. That's what happens. We, We think that our responses, that the best responses or the best way to keep us all safe in schools and in the community is through traditional law enforcement responses. When the research is very, very clear that, you know, vocational supports, educational supports, mental health, trauma um, uh, services, um, uh, drug treatment, all of those things are what young people need. They need mentoring, um, comprehensive sort of wraparound services to help children thrive. They need um, recreational opportunities, all of those things. So that's what juvenile court is supposed to be about. The other thing that's really important to remember about juvenile court is that we know so much about the adolescent brain and about what it means to be a teenager today. So we know that teenagers act like teenagers all over the world. They're impulsive, they're risk takers, they're boundary testers, they don't think ahead to the long-term consequences of things. They're really, you know, influenced by their friends and their classmates, their peers. And so, but that's normal. It's really normal. Um, and so the the question is, how do we respond to that? When some kid does something that's really impulsive, it's important for us to get that response right. And we too often, um, you know, again, turn to that punitive response. So what juvenile court does, it's it's meant to, and this is, we talk about the trainings that we're doing for youth defenders, is training them on that adolescent development. We go out and train judges on adolescent development and probation officers on adolescent development, all of those things um, to make us, help us, I should say, make better decisions about how to respond to young people. And then the third and final thing I'll say about one of the big differences, I think, in 
in juvenile court and adult court is people live with the misunderstanding or the misperception that when we talk about the arrest, prosecution, and incarceration of children, that we must be talking about the most serious violent offenses. And the data is really clear that the majority of children who come into our juvenile courts across the country are there for, you know, minor uh, petty offenses, you know, fights at school, talking back to at school in ways that appear aggressive, playing, you know, after curfew, those kinds of, uh, of behaviors. And even some of the things that appear to be serious offenses, like a felony assault or um, even something that is labeled labeled a robbery might also be an adolescence playing with each other, snatch and grab, you know, at, on the football field or or something like that. And so we have to look underneath and see what these behaviors are. They're kids doing stupid stuff, stealing a mascot from the school or whatever prank they're doing. All of that stuff comes in sometimes as serious on paper, as serious offenses, when in fact they were just silly adolescent behaviors. Hmm. That's interesting because what you said will really investigate me and really gave me a better picture of the difference between adult and um, the juveniles is more about, you know, not the punitive side. And I don't think a lot of people get that. I know I didn't because I was all, I was on to the, I stopped looking at the juveniles when, when my brother grew up and different stuff. I was more constantly like he's an adult, but just now just wanted to know the differences. So how, you so you you try to catch them early when they're making when they're making these decisions poor decisions which all teenagers do because right. they're trying to grow up. So you're saying you get even stuff like that? I didn't even think it would come to you if they're just stealing in a mascot or something like oh, that. Oh my goodness, you would be surprised. I'm telling you, people need to understand what goes on. That's the another thing um, that is different than in juvenile courts and adult criminal courts is that juvenile courts are usually private, meaning they're supposed to be anyway, right? Um, until they reveal the kid's record. Um, but there's, the design was that you would have confidential juvenile court proceedings that the regular public could not come in so that the child could make a mistake and, um, and, and have a second chance. Well, that's a really important thing to have the confidentiality. But one of the downsides of that is that people, the general public doesn't know what goes on in court. And I'm just telling you, um, think about, I ask your listeners and you to think about all the things we cared most about when we were teenagers. We cared about the clothes that we wore, the music that we listened to, the friends we sat with in the cafeteria, the parties we got invited to. We cared about, you know, um, uh, you know, playing in the park, having our downtime. And look, we also experimented experimented, some of us with, you know, drugs, with sex, with alcohol. These are things that all help us grow up. And the thing about it is so many of the charged offenses in juvenile court involve those low level um, adolescent behaviors. People really, really do not understand that. Right. Um, that is not to say, yes, of course, there is, um, you know, some, you know, gun violence and some real crime, but the majority of it is kids coming to court. I'll give you a story. I, you know, in my book, The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth, I tell a lot of stories about kids that we've represented. 
One of the stories is a 17-year-old child, a girl, who got into an argument with her boyfriend in school. And during the course of the argument, she is convinced that he's cheating on her. So she grabs his cell phone out of his hand and begins to walk away down the hallway, scrolling through his text messages to see if he has been communicating with some other girl. A school resource officer, a school police officer, sees this and decides to intervene. His intervention was to arrest her. He arrested her in the hallway. She spent the night in detention. She got formally prosecuted the next day in court for robbery, taking the property of another by stealth and force. So that that's adolescent behavior. So now I have this client who looks like a serious violent felon on paper, when in reality, she is a teenager doing what a teenager does. One of the other key features is their fairness fanatics. This is unfair. You're treating me unfair. So you're emotional and you're impulsive. And so you grab that cell phone and you keep on walking. You know, I'm telling you, the book is chock full of stories like that, of kids doing kid things. And I tell you what, I say kids doing kid things that we all did when we were kids, right? Um, or that our own kids have done and we would never call the police for. So we really, you know, have begun to use the criminal courts as a catch-all for regulating adolescent behavior without realizing the cost that we impose on those children by way of trauma, um, the collateral consequences, you know, how difficult it makes it, you know, for them to succeed later, um, the collateral consequences of the labeling. Once you're in the system, people assume that you're guilty forever and that you're always going to be that kid who's mischievous, that kind of thing. So it's, we got to be careful how we respond. That's true. I'm really, I'm really glad that you're on this show because you are definitely enlightening me about the juvenile system. And like you said, with it being so private, it can be, it's some cons to that. And we see a lot about prison reform. How does that, how can that impact the juvenile system? Yeah, we need, I mean, uh, you know, it's the, the, efforts to sort of decarcerate America, right? Um, to um, the, the themes, when we talk about the reform of prisons, adult prisons, is very similar to a number of the themes that occur in juvenile court, right? And in juvenile prisons and jails. So some of the critical issues are the racial disparities, right? Why is it, you know, mass, I say all the time, and I talk about this in the book, our obsession in this country with incarcerating Black America starts with Black children, right? Um, and so thinking about all the ways we are funneling Black children into the system uh, on the front end before you even get to prison. So that's, for, you know, is really important when we talk about decarceration, um, is decriminalizing normal adolescent behaviors. It's also about, um, on the front end, it's about reducing the footprint of police officers in the lives of all children, right? Because we don't need children to, we don't need police officers to raise children. Um, but it's, you know, we want to reduce the footprint of police on all children's lives, but especially black and brown children's lives. That's a really critical piece. All of that slowly, it's the slow walk to prison, right? It's the, you know, um, the incarceration of, of, of black and brown children through these entry points. But on that back end, part of a lot 
of what of work that has to be done in the prison reform work is separating children from adults. And people um, who are listening often don't realize how often or how far too frequently a child can end up in an adult jail, either because the laws of that particular state allow um, prosecutors to charge children as adults. And I got to tell you, the idea, the sheer idea of having a 16-year-old, right, living in a facility with a 22-year-old um, or a 30-year-old, you know, is really problematic. And what we see is the risk of physical abuse by guards, the risk of um, physical ab uh, abuse by other inmates, the risk of sexual assault, the high rates of solitary confinement. So if you commingle young children and adults, you know, they might do what they call sight and sound separation. Well, the ways in which they achieve that are to put the kids in isolation. Right. And let the adults run free. And there has been real literature and research done about how extraordinarily traumatizing and developmentally crippling it is to isolate, you know, children in a holding cell. So I hope every one of you has heard or watched the documentary by Ava DuVernay, When They See Us, right, which is the story of the Central Park Five, now the Exonerated Five, which were the five kids who falsely confessed, the five Black um, um, and, and Latino males who falsely confessed to raping a woman in Central Park, right? Um, and now they've been, you know, exonerated. But, you know, you know, Corey, one of the five, spent a an extraordinary amount of time in solitary confinement, Right. And what does that do to one's health and well-being? Wow. Yeah, I, I remember seeing that documentary. And I was really just like, what is going on? What is all of this? It's very complicated because a lot of times they, you know, the public, it's not like read, readily given to you. You have to go search this stuff out. You know, and just like you said, it's very hidden. So... With when you talked about your holistic approach, are you including the families? Oh, yeah. So excellent question. And so when we talk about, um, you know, rehabilitative, holistic, community based approaches to public safety, it is very much attentive to, right, nurturing the child, the family, and the community. Family is unequivocally a part of that. There is evidence-based best practices for engaging young people even and reaching and rehabilitating young people who have even committed the most violent repeat offenders. And one of the, we think about the child in context, the child in community, the child in school, the child in family. So what is it that the parents need? What is it that grandma needs to be able to support that child in the community instead of sending that child to a detention facility or a prison or a jail where we're only exacerbating the problems, right? And then we want to dump them right back into the same family or community without providing them the resources that they needed. So, you know, there is family functional therapy, 
multi-systemic therapy. These are just frameworks that have been used to engage families around um, the, the, the comprehensive rehabilitative strategy. So whether is it, does the family need help with housing? Does the family need help with um, therapy themselves, right? Do we need mediation between the child and the parent? Does the, fa the family need financial resources, you know, so that they can, you know, have a place, to, have a way to, you know, uh, house and feed their children, which is a huge source of tension in the family, which might lead to stress, anxiety, which in turn might lead to crime. Oh, most definitely. In, in the juvenile system, then they have a more of an advantage than in the you know, adult system in that situation because with your holistic approach and looking at the family, you're actually doing it where on the adult side, you really don't see that. I don't see it too much at all. That's right. That is so. That is some good stuff. I, I am really impressed with what's going on there. So, what are some of the things you are speaking to the leaders now? What What would be some of the things you would have them do? Because you have an extensive background, we should be listening. You have some the things you've been doing. It's just wonderful. What would you have them do? Yeah, so I think um, uh, there needs to be, you know, a wide range of reforms still. I mean, even with the rehabilitative philosophy, we've got to implement it, right? We've got to drive that home. Um, and so I think to achieve some of the what I said earlier about reducing the footprint of police in the lives of children is police-free schools. And I have to tell you, it's not as radical as it sounds at all. It is not to say that police aren't nearby, that police can't help when there is real crime. But we live under a mistaken belief that um, police officers in schools keep our kids safe. When in reality, the research has shown that policing, um, you know, creates uh, for many young, particularly for black and brown children who live in heavily policed neighborhoods or who have witnessed um, police violence on the television, that police presence creates a trauma, um, a, a sense of anxiety being in that space, which then undermines and compromises learning. So that's one just small piece is the ways in which there is a cost to putting police in schools. Um, when we also have police in schools, the knee-jerk reaction is, you know, um, let's send them, let's refer them, let's re -arrest, arrest them and send them to court as a solution. Whereas before we had police in courts, we were more creative and more thoughtful about how to engage with young people who had, you know, who were acting out, who were misbehaving. Um, another problem with police in schools is that they're not trained, um, most of them. And we've done, you know, there's been research showing how few police departments get adequate training, if, if any training, on adolescent development and de-escalation strategies for a teenager who's having a fit or whatever it is. So they're not well equipped. They are especially not well equipped to work with students with disabilities. And so you see, um, again, a very um, disproportionate rate of children of all races and classes who have a disability getting arrested in the school setting. And then black and brown children, even more likely if they have a disability to get arrested in the school system. So that's, that's a piece, the lack of training um, on that. So what are the solutions to that? Like the, the what do we do? Cause I too want schools to be safe. It is, you know, having a public health approach to school safety and to community safety. And that means cultivating 
meaningful, healthy relationships between adults and children. So children have people um, that they can go talk to and who have faith in them. Um, it means having a trauma-informed uh, public safety, public health approach, meaning looking to see where kids very early on need therapy, need um, uh, uh, mental health services, even at a young age, not age, not not labeling them, not, you know, you know, giving them a diagnosis. It's about providing that culturally appropriate mental health services early on for young people, giving them a space to talk and to vent. It's about having social emotional learning um, in the school curriculum. And there are courses designed for that about empathy and engagement um, communication skills, all of that really important as a part of that, you know, and it needs to be restorative, recognizing that a lot of children have been hurt. So how do you build um, bridges and restore relationships that have been broken, right, by the lack of trust, whether between adults and children? So that needs to happen. Whatever public health approach we use has to be um, racially equitable. We seem to have a very um, different response. You know, there's data showing that um, Black girls are 3.6 times more likely to be arrested at school than a white girl. White, I mean, Black boys are 2.4 times more likely to be arrested at school than a um, white boy. Um, and it just, it speaks to our differential response and how do we get to uh, a place of safety without using traditional law enforcement responses. For white kids, we're more likely to figure that out. But for Black kids, we default. So we need more counselors in school, more mental health providers in school, um, uh peer interventions, experts in school. When there is real violence in schools, we need credible messengers, violence interrupters. There are strategies for, for school safety, short of policing. I like that. I don't think most people think about this approach and putting the monies right in that, right at the beginning, I think it needs to be put into effect. And also, some family intervention, like you said, because kids may be going through a divorce, you know, parents may be in divorce or something like that, and some and don't know how to process it correctly. Hmm. I hope people are listening. I hope this, your leaders are listening, because I've been involved with some senators and things like that, and they want to know, okay, we know the problems, you know, so what, give me a solution. So this is the kind of um, answers they want to hear, like, how, what do you want me to do? What can I do? You know, right. What can we do with our laws? What can we, you know, implement and help you? And I don't think most people think of this. And so what, so that means it would have to be more funding put into these schools. That's right. That was part one of my interview with Kristen Hennings. All I have to say is, where was this when I was growing up? I hope people are listening to this. And that was just part one. Part two is coming up. And she's going to give even more information that's going to blow you away. Tune in next week and hear Miss Jennings talk about what she thinks about defunding the police. This is Michi J. And may you have a week filled with blessings. Thanks for tuning in to the show. 
For more information on our guests and resources, visit prisonerspardon.com. If you're enjoying the content, follow, like, and subscribe to this podcast. Also, please be sure to leave a rating and review. Until next time, God bless.